Good morning. We've got a birthday this week, don't don't we? Has anyone done the math? America turns 242. That's a birthday worth celebrating, wouldn't you know? Uh, we have birthdays, as, as we shared last week with birthdays, we have birthdays this week as well. The, our twins turn 21, and so it is a, a wonderful time to celebrate birthdays this week for the Smith family. And I thought it would be appropriate for us to begin my time with a prayer for our nation. You know, we know as we read through Scripture and Paul speaks that uh, certainly we acknowledge that, that our true citizenship is, is part of the kingdom of God, and of, of, of heaven, of eternity. But we also celebrate this citizenship that we have here in this place as well. And so in the Old Testament, we are told to, to pray for the welfare, pray for the, the prosperity of that place in which you live and pursue its prosperity. We're told also that the spiritual condition of God's people, as we would understand that today of the church, impacts the welfare of the land, impacts the welfare of the nation. So indeed, as Christ followers, as citizens of this nation, we have much to pray for and to encourage and to celebrate as citizens in this place, even though it's temporary as we pass on to our eternal citizenship with God into eternity. So let's pray for our nation today. Father, we thank you for the gifts of freedom and liberty that we share in this nation. And we know that, that those gifts have not come free and that they have cost greatly the lives of those who've served this nation. And we give thanks for those in our congregation. We give thanks for those in our families and our community that continue to serve and, and have served and pray a blessing upon them. And Father, today we come humbling ourselves, crying out on behalf of our nation, praying for the injustices that we see, the immoralities that we see, confessing that indeed, that maybe we have not been the light and the salt, and the witness that we are called to be in this land. So Lord, we humble ourselves. We ask that you encourage us, that you strengthen us, that you allow us to get up off of our knees and to find ways that we can pursue the welfare of our city, of our state, and of our nation, even in the midst of the surroundings in which we live. Lord, I pray that we'll all be able to take some time this week, even on Wednesday, to just stop and to pause and to give thanks and to celebrate the birthday of this people, of this nation. Father, we give you thanks. For it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. I wonder what... Jesus, I wonder what the Apostle Paul would offer to us today as he would come and share with us and encourage us. If he were to, to understand and have insight into our nation and all the struggles and crises that we have, I wonder what his word to us today would be. I wonder if he might choose the topic of love for us. This passage in 1 Corinthians 13 is, is a beautiful passage and we hear it around wedding times and, and we hear it as we reflect on the gift of love in our lives, in our family and in our church. But I wonder if there's a broader and greater expression and understanding that we could open our hearts and our lives to even today. 
We believe that Paul visited Corinth around 49 to 50 AD. And one of the reasons that we believe this is an archaeological reference to Gallio, who was the proconsul of that area at that time. And there has been an archaeological finding called the Gallio inscription that dates and refers to Gallio as being the, uh, again, the proconsul of this area. And Gallio is mentioned in Scripture in the book of Acts. And so Paul finds himself beginning and sharing the gospel in Corinth. It's one of the the places that he stayed the longest in his ministry. He was there actually for, we think, about 18 months. And there he met Priscilla and Aquila. And it's there in Corinth that he uh, apparently joined alongside with them in his skills of tent making. Was able to establish a business and, and the church there in Corinth during that time. Well, after 18 months, Paul went away. And he began to hear back concerns and reports about the struggle that the Corinthian people were having in living the Christian life in that culture. You see, Corinth was a bustling port city that had been reestablished by the Romans in about 45, 50 B.C. And so it had been reestablished. It was bustling. It was your stereotypical, typical port city with all the... Uh, the good and the bad that comes with that. And so it became a collection point, a gathering point for people, for, for merchants, for travelers in that part of the world. And it would be interesting to note that as the struggles of those cultures competed, that, that finding your way in Christ and living out the new principles that, that and truths that Paul was teaching became a tension and a struggle. It's interesting to know that the patron deity of Corinth was Aphrodite. And that years before, she had this beautiful temple that had been dedicated to her. And it was known for the temple prostitutes that, that, that were there, that led in those rituals. And while that temple had been destroyed, there was still the, the impact and the aftermath of that impact on that town and on that community. It was still, in many ways, the city of love. And to be called a Corinthian girl might get you slapped if you said it at the wrong time. And that was the reputation. That was the expression and pursuit of love that that community and that that area offered to the people that resided there and traveled through there. It's interesting that Paul then would talk and write about love, about a new gift and a new expression of love. For you see, Paul's understanding, the understanding of the church and this new expression of love was totally foreign to the expression of love that they had grown up with and that was being demonstrated and exemplified in all that community. I suspect that love in America is in a similar crisis with multiple understandings. In fact, I would argue that in many places in our own community, in our own nation, love has a greater affinity with ancient Corinth's view of love than it does with the scriptural view of love. A selfish love, a licentious love, a conditional love, a love that pursues only its own gain and pleasure. And therefore, I would suggest that love is one of, if not the most misunderstood words in the English language. So, 
Like the church at Corinth, let us consider and open ourselves to a new expression of love for the new life that Christ has come for us to live. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we're going to take a, a, the opportunity this morning to look at several passages very briefly in the book of Corinthians because I think that Paul is, is, has this theme of love and the expression of love all throughout. And this in chapter 13 is that culmination, is that place where he tries to put it all together that we might understand love. It begins in the first three verses. Paul recognizes the problem. In the previous chapter, he's talked about spiritual gifts and the body of Christ. And he's talked about the gifts of, of knowledge and the gifts of prophecy and the, the gifts of speaking in tongues and the gifts of faith. And what was taking place in the early church is that they were bragging about their spiritual gifts. And they were comparing themselves and talking about how strong their faith was and how weak your faith was and how I spoke in tongues and how you didn't speak in tongues and how I had knowledge and was able to prophesy and you didn't have much knowledge and, and you certainly never prophesied like I do. And so Paul begins addressing the problem. In verse 1 he says, If I have the tongues of men and of angels, if I speak in tongues, if I can speak the heavenly languages, or if even if I can speak and have the rhetorical skills of a man that captures the attention of the audience, if I can speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, then I am like a noisy gong. I bet you didn't know, some of you probably do, that one of the things that Corinth was famous for was its bronze. It had developed a specific kind of bronze alloy that when, when made was of high quality. And one of the key things that they would make would be gongs. How many of you remember the story of Mulan? With three girls growing up, that was one of our favorite stories. Remember Mushu? What was Mushu's job? His job was to take the gong and to wake the gods. How concerning is that, that your god is asleep? Isn't that what happened with Elijah and the prophets of Baal? There was this great showdown between Yahweh and between the, the, the gods of Baal. And the prophets are crying out and Elijah's making fun of them. He says, you need to cry out a little louder because your god must be asleep. And so whenever you'd walk into these temples, these temples to all these gods, there would typically be a gong that would be there. And you'd walk into the temple and you'd crash on the gong to wake the gods up when you came into worship and to bring your offerings. And that noise and that gong. And, and Paul is saying, oh, even if you can speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if you don't have love, then it's just like banging on those gongs. Trying to wake somebody up because there's, there's nothing there. And then Paul goes on and says, but even if you have the gifts of prophecy and of knowledge and of faith, faith that you can move mountains, if you have all of those gifts, but you don't have love, then you are nothing. Paul relates back to 1 Corinthians 8. 
in chapter, in chapter 8, verses really 1 through 13, but specifically 7 through 13, Paul is talking about eating the meat given to idols. And, and some of you have this knowledge, and some of you have come to this place where you understand that it's okay for you to eat to eat the meat that was, that was sacrificed to these idols. It's cheap meat, it's good meat, and, and enjoy. But what you don't realize is that there's brothers and sisters. There's weaker brothers and sisters that haven't come to that place of knowledge. And what you're doing is you're inviting them over to your house, you're taking them out to eat, and you're putting this meat before them. And in their weakened state, you're convincing them, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And they eat it, and they eat it, and they have guilt. And Paul is saying, you've taken your knowledge and you have ruined your brother and your sister. That is not love. If I have all knowledge and faith and can prophesy, but I don't have love, then it profits me nothing. I am nothing. He goes on to say in verse 3, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, if you'll notice, there's probably, if, you're, if your translation says, my, I've given my body to be burned, there's probably a note at the bottom of the page that says, given your body that you might boast, that I might boast. I, I want to suggest this, this reading of boasting, maybe being more accurate. The, the debate goes along, when was this written? When was Corinthians written? If it's before the, 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 the torturing, the persecuting of Nero, where Christians were burned at the stake, used as, as, as lampposts to guide people into the cities. If it's before that time, there's a very good, good possibility and, and, and argument that what this should read is that I give my body to be beaten that I might boast. Turn with me, if you would. Let me find it. To 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Notice what's going on again. The, to the same church, it's written at a different time. But notice what's going on. Look at verse 17. What I am saying, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will also boast. Now look at verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I've spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, without food, in cold and exposure. You want to boast? Oh, but, but boy, I love God's look. I've been beaten, I've been imprisoned. I've suffered for Jesus. I've given my body for him. Look, I've got the scars to prove it. And Paul says, even if you can boast in the sacrifices, the pain, the suffering that you've endured on the sake of Christ, even if you can boast about being beaten, and we all know people like that. Yeah, let me show you my scars from the days I was an all-state athlete. Let me show you my scars from this or, or from that. Let me tell you about the, 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 
We know people like that. They boast in, in their scars, in their sufferings. And Paul is saying, even if you can boast in those sufferings, if you can boast more than I can, but you don't have love, then what? It profits you nothing. The church at Corinth had a love problem. They were so focused on their own righteousness and their own piety, their own works and acts of, of, of service and of righteousness that they forgot the main thing. They forgot love. And what they were discovering is that there was nothing there. They were suffering. So Paul introduces them. Paul steps back and he, he takes a moment to define and to reintroduce them to this, this new kind of love, this love that we call agape from the Greek. This word, is it's, it's a diamond in the rough that had not yet been fully developed. And it's Jesus and it's the New Testament authors and writers that grab a hold of this diamond in the rough and they begin to shine it. This word agape is found very, very, very seldomly by Greek scholars in looking at outside extra biblical literature. That word agape is not found very much at all. It's found primarily and prominently in the New Testament. It descri it's described in the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels. It's defined by Paul in his letters. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, a new commandment that I give to you, agape one another. And John proclaims in his first letter of John that indeed God is agape. Agape is a love that originates with God and it manifests itself in and through those who have relationship to God through Jesus Christ. Agape is the key defining characteristic of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be in community and fellowship as Christians. Agape is a love that is defined by what it does or it does not do. I think we mentioned this last week. Jesus says, if you agape me, if you love me, then you will obey me. You will do as I teach and as I command. Agape is not just an idea. Agape is a behavior. Agape is a love that is dynamic and active. It cannot be static. Agape is a verb. In fact, these next verses are going to list 15 verbs that describe agape. And we all learned from the earliest days of elementary school that verbs are action words. Agape is a verb. It's not simply or solely an inner feeling or emotion. It is love that is manifested and demonstrated. It is a love that cannot be hidden in one's heart. It is a love that must be expressed and manifested. We begin in verse 4. Paul starts with two significant characteristics and qualities of agape. He says, agape is patient and kind. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 2 verse 4. He says, do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness, of his tolerance and of his patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? 
do you see that, that patience and kindness are, are the first characteristics of agape that Paul lists here? Patience is that long-suffering characteristic. It's God holding back divine judgment. It's God holding back His wrath saying, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be long-suffering so that, that people can come to know me and to come to know my Son and can come to know Christ and experience salvation. Patience takes time. It's long-suffering. But God is not simply patient. He's patient for a reason. And that reason is God is patient so that he can demonstrate and show his kindness to all of us. The word kindness, I think, means an active goodness. An active goodness where God is out to show us his mercy, his forgiveness, his salvation. So God's kindness is reaching out to love and to forgive and to bring the world into salvation. But it takes his patience his long-suffering to allow his kindness to infiltrate and permeate the world. Through agape, the work of God, the work of his patience, of his kindness, now becomes the work of those who are in Christ. God working in and through us to offer kindness and patience to others. Some of you are familiar with the story of Abraham Lincoln and Edwin Stanton. They were bitter political enemies. At least Stanton thought they were bitter political enemies. He called Lincoln an, a painful imbecile. He called him a long-armed creature. In fact, he called him a gorilla. He called him a low, cunning clown. No one treated Lincoln with more contempt before he became president than Stanton did. Yet when Lincoln became president, he invited Edwin Stanton to be his secretary of war. Lincoln said he was the best man for the job. Lincoln showed patience. And he showed kindness. He long suffered that relationship. And on the night Lincoln was assassinated in Ford's Theater and they took him across the street to that home, it was Edwin Stanton that came and stood by his side. And as Lincoln lay there dying, Edwin Stanton said, truly this is the greatest leader of men that the world has ever known. Abraham Lincoln practiced kindness and patience. And he won a friend. And he won a co-worker. And he won someone over that made contribution to Lincoln's work in his life and to this nation. Love is patient and kind. Now notice what begins to happen. Paul begins to describe what agape is not. And we need to read between the lines here and understand that when when. Paul says agape is not envious. What he is saying to the Corinthians is saying you guys are envious. When he's saying agape is not boastful, he's saying you guys are boastful. So Paul begins in verse 4 by saying 
Love, agape, is not envious. It is not boastful. It is not proud. Some of your translations may say, agape, love, is not jealous. Love does not have a rivalry. Love is not covetous. There's two kinds of envy that we struggle with. First of all is the envy of, of what others have or possess that we do not have. And we want that and we crave that and we lust for that and we covet that and we want that for ourselves. Love is not covetous. But love is also not begrudging. One of the things I've learned is that, that there's another kind of envying. It's the envying that, that relates to people who find joy or pleasure or happiness, find blessedness. And another aspect of envy is that I don't necessarily want what you have, but I don't want you to have it either. Because I see that it brings you happiness. And I see that it brings you joy. And I see that it brings you a contentment to life. And I don't want you to have that. I don't want what you have, but I don't want you to have it either. And Paul says love is not envious. It's not covetous. It's not begrudging. Love is not boastful. This word boastful means love is not like a windbag. And, and what we mean by a windbag and boastful here is a braggart, someone who is so self-centered that even in their own boasting, they do so to wound and to hurt others. They build themselves up by knocking others down. Oh, I see this in the world of sports and in competition. Whatever happened to the team that could just win? And be a good sport and talk about how hard they worked instead of trashing the other team. Man, we killed them. They're no good. They need to just quit this game because they're so bad. We tear others down so that we can build ourselves. We brag about ourselves in a way that hurts and destroys others. Love is not that way. Paul continues, love is not proud. It's not puffed up. 1 Corinthians 8.1, Paul says, knowledge puffs up. That's the passage where he's talking about, about eating meat before those who, who aren't ready for that, who, who are weak in that, who would feel defiled by that. And you pressure them to eat that meat and you ruin them. Knowledge puffs up. But then the next phrase in chapter 8, verse 1, but love, but agape builds up. Agape tempers and harnesses our knowledge so that it can be expressed and lived out in a context of love. Paul continues, agape is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. This word rude can mean acts unbecomingly. Again, it comes with the idea of bringing shame and disgrace upon others. Turn back just a couple of chapters to 1 Corinthians 11. It's this beautiful story in verse 23 that talks about the Lord's Supper and that the Lord had given this to you. But just look back a couple of verses. The Corinthians church was gathering and they were gathering to have the, a meal before a potluck meal before they had the Lord's Supper, except this was potluck without sharing. And so you had people of all different socioeconomic stat statuses and you had people showing up and some would literally sit there and watch the wealthy people eat and drink and, and party and fellowship while they were sitting there hungry and thirsty. And look what Paul says in verse 22. What? 
Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. This is is rude behavior. Rude behavior is that which tries to shame and disgrace others. Paul goes on, says, love is not self-seeking. Look at chapter 10, verse 24. Paul is introducing this idea and, and reinforcing and teaching it as well. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Down in verse 33, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. In Philippians 2 verse 4, Paul puts it this way, that we are to consider other people as more important than ourselves. Why? Because love is not self-seeking. Now this is in contrast, I, I think the, the goddess Aphrodite gives us a, a, a great contrast of an erotic kind of love, a sensual kind of love. But maybe Paul's speaking against here a, 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 the philos kind of love, the, the brotherly love, which is a wonderful love except for one thing. Philos or phileo in, in Greek was a love, a, a brotherly love, a love in which we chose. It was a love of friendship. It was a love of family where you, you chose and you picked and then you chose to, to love and to act in that way. But what might happen is you might say, well, all I care about is me and mine. All I care about is my family. All I care about is my city. All I care about is my nation. I don't care about all the others. It's love of choice. I'm choosing to love you. Well, there, there's good in that in some aspect until it becomes contrary to others. Because what does agape say? Agape says, love your neighbor. Agape says, love your enemy. Paul is saying, agape is not self-seeking, but rather it loves others around you, even those that aren't related to you, even those that, that you're not friends with. Love seeks the interest of others. Love is not easily angered. It's not provoked. Again, this contrasts patience. Now, certainly there are reasons to be angry, but we're to be slow to anger, Paul says in another place. And here he's going for those that easily anger. You know those people. They're just looking for a reason to get mad. You look at them wrong and they're mad. You say something the wrong way and they're mad. Paul says love is not easily angered and provoked. Rather, we're, we're patient with each other. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, let anger be put away from you. In verses 5 and 6, Paul continues Agape does not keep account of wrongs. It does not rejoice in injustice. Keep account of wrongs. Do, do you do that in primitive tribes? When you would war against a tribe or you would war against another family? You know what you would do? You would, you would hang stuff from your roof and, and from the walls in your hut. And you would remind things that reminded you that you had a reason to hate people. And that you had a reason to, to go after them in vengeance. Wow, can you believe primitive tribal people did that? Well, yeah. What do you have around your house, your office place, that reminds you how much you hate and despise and need to have revenge on somebody else? Just keep it there in sight. 
just to remind you that they need to get theirs, that God's after them, you're after them. Love does not keep account of wrongs. It doesn't rejoice in injustice. Oh, how we love to gossip and to heap upon others when they do something wrong. Oh, did you hear about this person? Did you hear what they did? Oh, did you hear that, 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 what, that injustice or that wrong that they did? And we rejoice in that. I had a group of teenage boys that, that in, in one of the youth groups I was a part of, and they would go to, to, to parties with alcohol, and they were underage, and everyone there was underage. And I said, what are you guys doing going to that party? Oh, we, 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 we just like to watch the, everybody get drunk and walk around and stagger and make fools of themselves. Yeah, we're rejoicing in unrighteousness, aren't we? That's not love. That's not agape. And then Paul returns. He switches back to positive expressions. He says, Agape rejoices when truth wins out. Love stands for truth and justice and mercy. And we need to learn to celebrate and reinforce those moments. Agape bears, believes, hopes, endures all things. In verse 7, it bears all things. There is nothing that agape cannot persevere. It cannot face. Agape believes and hopes all things. But here's a caution. The focal point of agape is God. We cannot always believe in and hope the best for everyone. Now follow me carefully. Because people let us down and you know those people, you've given them second and third and fourth and fifth chances and you want to believe in them but you've been hurt and you know that you could be hurt and others could be hurt. And so you approach it with careful. But here I think is what Paul is saying. While we cannot always believe in the best for everyone, We can always believe in and hope that God is present and working in me and in others. I can always believe and hope in you because I am confident that God is working in you. So my faith is in God. And so therefore I can hope and I can believe in that other person no matter how many times they failed and how many struggles because I am not going to give up on them because I'm going to believe as long as they have breath in their lungs that God is not finished with them and God is believing and hoping and working in them and so can I. Love endures all things and we're back to where we started. Love never fails. Gordon Fee puts it this way. Love has a tenacity It's a beautiful word. A tenacity that enables it to love in every kind of circumstance and continually pours itself out on behalf of others. In verse 13, Paul concludes, he says, Now faith, hope, love, abide. These three. He's referring to all those spiritual gifts. Those are going to pass away. But faith and hope and love are going to abide. But the greatest of these is love. Faith will become sight. Hope will be revealed and become reality. And love will remain. Love will continue on and on. A love that originates with God, that flows through Christ, through His believers. A love that is undeserved. It endures. It puts others first and it sacrifices. A love that forgives and begins again. Small county seat church, got a new pastor in town. 
There seemed to be a buzz in the community about the new pastor and the crowds were starting to, to come and to return and, and to increase in numbers. And, and one of the, the church skeptics, now we don't have any of those around our place, but for this church, they had them. It was the church skeptic. They never were quite sure. There was always something wrong at the church. And, and they said, hey, what's going on down at that church? I see there's lots of people going on down there. What's that preacher preaching? He said, he said uh, uh, what, what's going on? And he said, well, he's preaching, and he's preaching well. What's he preaching? He says he's preaching that uh, we're sinners, and we need to repent, and we need to come to Christ and accept Him as Lord and Savior. He says, well, that's what the old one preached. He said, but this one preaches it with a tear in his eye and love in his heart. You see, there's lots of religious... Christian rhetoric going on in our nation today. Yet so much of it is void of love. What our nation needs today is a church that lives and expresses and manifests the love of God through its community with each other and with the world in which we live as we pursue the welfare of the city and nation in which we live. Let's pray.